0: Welcome to the Open Div Summit, a four-day pod conference around spirituality and meaning-making in the modern world. Each day, February 25th to 28th, we'll be releasing 10 to 20 pre-recorded conversations with top academics, theologians, clergy, and secular community leaders. In addition, each day we're hosting several live, interactive events on Zoom. We'd love to see you there. For more, check out summit.opendiv.org. Today's conversation is with Anne Paves. Ann Taves is Professor Emerita of Religious Studies at University of California, Santa Barbara, and is the PI of the Inventory of Non-Ordinary Experiences Project. Her books include Fits, Trances, and Visions, Religious Experience Reconsidered, and Revelatory Events, as well as articles advocating studying religion under the wider rubric of worldviews and ways of life, which is our topic today. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Anne, really happy to have you here. I'm a big fan of your work. Maybe just to start for folks who are less familiar with some of the research you've done, could you just talk a little bit about what are worldviews and why are they important for the study of religion and non-religion?
1: Well, actually my collaborator, who's at Stockholm university, he and I have been talking about worldviews and ways of life Mm -hmm. and there's some nuances around adding ways of life to that, that I kind of want to get to. But I'll say that probably the most common or agreed upon way to understand worldviews would be in terms of a series of big questions that we may or may not answer explicitly, but basically that we have to answer at least through our behavior in order to kind of be in the world. And so... The questions would be like, what's real? You know, yeah, what's real? Uh, and that could go all the way to ultimate reality, but it could also go to, you know, my computer screen. I think that's real. Then where do we come from and where are we going? What we, which we think of as a cosmology question. Mm. And then a knowing or epistemology question, how do we know? how we know the things, you know, how do we know what's real? How do we know where we came from and where we're going? And so how we know could be based on science. It could be based on revelation. It could be based on, you know, what my parents taught me or, you know, what I just learned growing up. I see that as sort of the first half, first set of worldview questions. The second half is where how Eggles and my approach differs a little bit. in The second half, the more standard way to go is to put things like a question about values and a question about practices. Mm. But we specifically put three questions in sort of the second group. One having to do with the situation. What is the situation in which we find ourselves? And for us, that's a really important starting question and then the one about values we formulate in terms of values and goals which is also a really important bit to add and then for the practice or action question it's it's really a question of so then how do you well for others it may just be how do you enact your values or something like that how do you put those into practice but for us it's also What's the path to reach your goals? And so what we've realized comparing what we're doing now with some of the more kind of standard approaches is while the standard approaches are really thinking about worldviews as kind of beliefs, what are the beliefs that you hold? Our shifts in those last three questions are turning it into worldviews in action. So, by starting with a situation which we find ourselves, thinking about our goals, and then thinking about how to get there, it's very much geared toward action. And part of what we've done with that is argue that basically all evolved animals have to answer these questions in very, what could be very rudimentary forms, that any animal that moves, that acts, has to have a Sense of their environment and where they're going and what their goals are, and all that kind of stuff. So, does that cover yeah, the basics? Yeah,
0: yeah and, and maybe that is a great kind of diving off point into this idea of implicit versus explicit worldviews. Yeah. And yeah. What does that look like for like an animal versus, versus a human?
1: Yeah, because so we talk about levels, so that first level would be enacted or, you know, embodied and enacted. And then the next level would be articulated. So you have to have language to put something into to articulate it. And that we would go into recounted. So that's when you have a story that you, or, you know, something that you remember that you tell over and over again. And then we have textualized. So textualized is once you have writing two things. We tend to not, I mean, this is kind of an artificial dividing line, but Agil and I felt like it might be kind of weird and people might not really buy it if we started talking about other animals having worldviews. So we talk about all of us, us and other animals all having ways of life. And that in our way, if in enacting our ways of life, we have to answer Our own versions of these questions and once we get to humans we that's when we talk about worldviews but we see all these layers operating at once so it's not like once you have writing then you're just operating in textualized worldviews because one of the cool things about about this in our view is that by thinking about it in terms of action and individual agents rather than a system, that our situation can change really rapidly. And our answers to the questions may shift to some degree each time our situation is changing. And it's not at all clear. We think it's a big issue to study to consider the extent to which each of those shifts represents something coherent or not
0: right well and so when you say coherent do you mean the like the action is coherent with the situation and with the kind of broader world or do you mean that like the values the goals the actions and then the
1: underlying i meant more with if you're doing something in response to a situation you're enacting something that what you're doing there may not fit coherently with what you do in the next situation right
0: right, and
1: may or may not fit with what you overall claim that you're doing right right when you make it explicit part of the power of this in our view is that it's a bottom-up approach rather than a top down and what you see in religious studies tends to be the assumption that we are talking about beliefs and that these are systematized. And so starting with, if, if we're going to talk about religions as worldviews, that we would be talking with sort of a systematized theology, so to speak. And we see that as kind of a high-end product of the sorts of people who are really into rationalizing a worldview and right. often trying, trying to get people to adopt it.
0: <laughs> right, right. and it's so interesting so part of what really drew me to your work is this question of as someone who is you know kind of secular spiritual but not religious you know most of my worldview, i think is is primarily enacted right and it's only been in recent years that i've begun to do more intentional reflection on what are what do i actually believe or how does how do these beliefs kind of determine the way i'm acting and how can i bring more maybe coherence between us um and also as a community builder i see a lot of people kind of creating events, right? Maybe they're creating a new meditation series, maybe they're creating these other kind of communities, right? And I think CrossFit gets thrown around often, um, yeah. even though there have been some some more, you know, potentially problematic things from leadership lately, but it gets thrown around as this kind of community that is not just a gym, but is a whole kind of ideology around it. And that creates these very strong communities. And so um, you know I'm curious for you, how do these worldviews develop? And like particularly from the view of someone who's maybe Kind of looking to either personally deepen their sense of like worldview, and maybe maybe make it more explicit as opposed to enacted, um, or for someone who's kind of in a community and is saying, okay, we're we're doing this like running meetup where people are, are socializing, or we're doing this new kind of container where people can have deep conversations outside of traditional religious institutions. What does it mean to kind of take this maybe ritual that some people are resonating with, and then you know flourish it into something that is a more fully like yeah you know, yeah. Well, just a small question.
1: Um, yeah, let me do a little backstory to lead into that because that is a really big question. Is one I'm thinking about, you know, I think I'm thinking maybe we think about that one together. Sure. Um, but let me just say that what precipitated this on my part, because I, I wasn't always, you know, promoting the world use thing or thinking about it in this way, was really when scholars of religion started moving into what they were kind of calling secular studies and they wanted to study non-religious and secular people under the heading of religious studies. And this just struck me as kind of crazy sounding and that we needed a bigger umbrella to study both. But part of my emotional investment in doing that was, well, twofold. I mean, on, on a principle basis, I don't think that we should be using religious studies categories and imposing them on non-religious or secular people, saying, oh, well, they're really religious. But I also grew up in a non-religious family, and I didn't have the community of a, a church or a synagogue or something like that. And I didn't have sort of what we might now call worldviews education, you know, like through Sunday school kind of thing and all that. So I felt this kind of void. And so I was asking the same question that you're asking. You know, how do we create a framework and a way of thinking that would allow us and people younger than me to explore that in a way that I didn't really get growing up to move from enacted to more articulated and reflective and then do whatever, including, you know, if community is a high value and a goal, how do you start to help that happen? So for me, I mean, that's why I was attracted to what, what you're trying to do. And to me, that's a big question, is how do we use it? We've been doing some experimentation with a program that a former student of mine initiated in Houston. It's called Courage to Search. And Mm. he developed that in conjunction with a homeless women's shelter that had you know, a variety of practical skills, things they were doing. He also had 12-step programs. But without wanting to impose something religious or spiritual, he wanted, I mean, the, the, the shelter wanted to provide the women there with something like what we're talking about. And so Courage to Search is kind of model on the big questions and some elaborations of those in a kind of, oh, you know, like 10 week workshoppy mode where you start to explore how you answer those questions and reflect on that. So, you know, that's one sort of possibility, but I, I think there's a lot of wide open options there.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, and that's so interesting. I saw a little bit about the the course and kind of prepping the interview, and it, it looks something, something that I would definitely personally be interested to explore as a practice. But yeah, you know, I'm I'm curious when you look at some of the other, because I know beyond worldviews, you've studied a lot of you studied revelatory events and particularly the okay. creation of a couple of modern day spiritual communities, the community around the the course in miracles, community around AA, and and the Mormons, right? Um, yeah. I'm curious. You know, if you look at like the history of, you know, for example, like Alcoholics Anonymous, do you see kind of like a progression of the development of a worldview and the enactment of a worldview, or you know, going from enacted to recounted to textualized?
1: Hmm. I would see their development. I would see the growth of it in somewhat different terms, but um, I have. I've given two sets of worldviews lectures and I've used AA as a case study in them. And so it wasn't, so there I developed kind of a different way to to think about AA in relation to worldviews than what was in the revelatory events book, which was a different kind of, approach to the development process what i talked about in the worldviews lectures i used in terms of enacted and articulated i used a story of bill wilson the one of the co-founders of aa I'm pretty sure you know about this, but I'm figuring some of our listeners may not be like totally versed in AA. Yeah, history.
0: yeah.
1: So anyway, yeah, so he was one of the co-founders. And AA has this big book, which everybody reads. It's the, you know, it's the kind of, they call it sort of the Bible, but it's the book. The sacred our, text. The sacred text, yeah. Anyway, he has a story in there. Uh, this is in his pre-recovery days where he's out with a friend and he's going on and on about uh, how he's uh, quit drinking and how great this is and everything. But then somehow the friend gets him to go into a bar and they're sitting there at the counter and the bartender just shoves a drink at him and he drinks it. And then he has another and he has another and so it's a whole nother relapse. So he's reflecting on this. And so he's just been articulating, now using worldview terms, right? He's just been articulating to his friend how he's not going to drink. And he's given up drinking. Guy pushes a drink at him, he drinks. Right. That's enacted. And right. it shows how you can have this conflict between the two. And how we'll do behaviors that can be diametrically opposed to what we even think, not just hypocritically what we say we're going to do, but we know we're not, but what we really intend to do, and then we don't. Right. Right. So I saw that. I used that to, to show, to then tease apart other aspects of the, of the answers to the worldview questions that were attached to, to both of those. So his goal, the enacted goal, was to get drunk. The articulated goal was to stay sober, to not drink. But his way of doing that was through willpower. And under that, part of what I was teasing out with that is that under that, I think is a broadly, I don't know, a a, a schema about us being autonomous selves who can just do, enact whatever we want via willpower. And so this kind of, this sort of worldview analysis was allowing me to surface the kind of hidden worldviews, assumptions that were going on for each of these behaviors And then when he enters into recovery, when he kind of figures out about the 12 steps and has his kind of conversion experience, it was really at core about needing to depend on others or requiring the help of others. So it was overturning the autonomous self-idea. And that then constituted a new kind of group right that became you know the aa community which is all which is very intensely committed to principles that preserve the nature of the group and the good of the group and that you know so, so that everybody is enabled to recover right
0: right well and it's such an interesting example of maybe you know, pre-recovery, there is this implicit worldview of valuing self-reliance and valuing like willpower and, and valuing really uh, maybe like personal strength more. And then after recovery, yeah. there's this more sense of valuing vulnerability and talking about the most uh, challenging times. And I think, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, there is almost like the testimony format that folks have where yeah. they tell their own stories yeah. kind of in a similar way to the yeah. adults tell this story. And um, you know, it mirrors in many ways often that kind of almost worldview shift. I guess it's you know almost like documenting yes. the conversion story.
1: Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And I also I mean from a secular spirituality point of view, we can also talk about the twelve steps. Because, you know, there are some breakaway groups that just can't deal with even the spiritual language in AA or the references to God and stuff like that. But there are a lot of secular people who can tolerate it a little better and translate that into terms that they're more comfortable with. I mean there's this, oh, there's some acronym for it, I'm forgetting right now, but basically they take the group as their higher power. So they don't have to go into anything particularly spiritual or supernatural sounding. But I think that there is a lot of value in this, for the steps interpreted in this more secular kind of way as a path of transformation for making that kind of shift. And so there might be ways, actually, I hadn't thought about this before, but you know, there might be ways to actually integrate the kind of worldviews analysis we are just doing pre and post with the twelve steps.
0: Right. Well, and and I think one of the, one of the ideas that's that's come along for me in the last couple of years is this idea of like orthopraxy versus orthodoxy, right? Mm, like, yeah. You know, having the, you know practices which can you know provide value and. Um, help move towards growth, even though uh, with with multiple different types of interpretations, right? Whether there's a more theistic interpretation or the Buddhist or the secular non-theist.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And that again, is one of the things, because it was rooted in the thirties and, you know, kind of idealizes its founding period. There's still this language left in that is more, christian or protestant sounding they i really see it as trying to get to a generic structure that like you just said can be interpreted through a bunch of these larger frames and i think that's really cool
0: yeah yeah for sure well, and so what's what's curious to me, I've got two questions about this that I'd be curious to hear your opinion on um, that I've been sitting with. One is, you know, so Alcoholics Anonymous came in many ways out of the Oxford group, which was kind of like an evangelical, I believe Protestant movement and during that time. And I've seen a number of people nowadays kind of looking to create these more like secular friendly containers of meaning and like pulling from you know maybe Buddhism for like certain practices or even like, really trying to look through like the frameworks of like the Eightfold Path or some of these more explicitly Buddhist um, frameworks as opposed to like creating their own kind of mm-hmm. worldview and path. And I'm curious, you know, as you're seeing some of these groups uh, or as you study different worldviews and these different like modern day courses, uh, like the Course in Miracles and all this, how much are you seeing people kind of remixing what has come before versus really trying to come up with kind of like maybe original or new interpretations of answers to those questions?
1: I think I want to try and get at what I think you're talking about from a slightly different angle, not just go with the remixing, but I think again, I want to stick with AA because I think it's pretty illustrative. Because you're absolutely right, it came out of the Oxford movement, which was a Protestant movement, it had a certain structure that was around small groups and it had its own version of the four, I forget what they were, four, you know, like four principles that were sort of 12 step-ish. So you can definitely go from AA back to the Oxford group and you can see both, you know, literally and in terms of components, the emphasis on small groups and the emphasis on, you know, core spiritual path kind of thing you can see that continuity but you can also look at the moment where in my view where they broke and it it was really in relation to the second of the big questions which we also kind of formulate not just where did we come from and where are we going but beneath all that who are we who's the we here? And for the Oxford group, the we was Christians, was people who were converted. Whereas the we for AA became we alcoholics. Right, right. And so I think, so I guess the first that I'd say for any group formation process is who are the we? Right. And how how is the we being defined? The second thing I'd say is I think that AA pioneered a new kind of small, a new kind of movement structure that we actually haven't seen before. Course in Miracles, it develops some small groups, but they're all ad hoc. They're not officially sponsored. So it that's just kind of, if you want to study it with some other people, that's cool, but, you know, That's not really... It's less formal. Yeah. And it's not integral to what it is. Whereas with AA, the small groups are foundational. And beyond the 12 steps, there's the 12 traditions. And the 12 traditions are about the nature of the small groups, where they get their authority, what their foundational principles are, and what members can and can't do as members of AA. So the whole principle of anonymity, which becomes a spiritual practice for AA, is built into that. The idea of putting principles before personalities, which is another of the traditions, is about the values of the group take precedence over any argument that, you know, we might want to have about something or other. So without, I mean, I'm not saying everything should turn into AA, but that combination of a spiritual path plus the traditions There's also a a third set of 12, I guess, to make a nice triangle, that's about service and the higher level structures of AA, which are about service. But ordinary AA members know the 12 steps and the 12 traditions. And there's something about that that strikes me as really central. And so to go back to your original question, that whether Something's coming out of Buddhism or Christianity or, you know, soul cycle or where wherever it's coming from, to me, maybe doesn't matter as much as somehow articulating these two core components.
0: Well, and it, I, I'd be curious because it sounds like the first is almost like an individual worldview or way of life. And then the second, the traditions is almost like a group
1: yeah. worldview yeah. and way of life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's about, I mean, I think we could say it's about self and community. You know, it's about self-transformation in a community that is devoted to that process. But part of the beauty of alcoholics pioneering this is that as Bill Wilson would always say, you know, I mean, they're notoriously anti group anti-authoritarian, not wanting to be bossed around. So, so they had to make this thing as kind of loose as they can at, at the same time to preserve the goals, which, which I think is, you know, really brilliant. I mean, it gets it away from, to me, the dangers of a cult-like groupthink type tendency, which I think is really dangerous.
0: Right, right. Yeah, especially with some of the, it's interesting that I've seen some articles studying certain groups as almost like becoming quasi cult-like, um, which is fascinating. Because of how decentralized it is, there's just the variety, right? Like there, any group can kind of by nature of its own self-governance kind of skew one direction or, or, or another. But for the most part, the broader organization stands by its principles and, and kind of allows for for this real autonomy of, of all the groups yeah um, you know i'd be curious you know so and we're talking now a little bit about group ways of life and, and and all this how how does this category of kind of worldviews and ways of life interact with what we think of as more traditional religions and maybe like the kind of ritual communal experiential kind of uh at parts of, of of what we think of as traditional religion
1: oh yeah well i Up until I just retired last summer, I was teaching a course called Comparing Religions and Other Worldviews. And in that, we looked at uh, Judaism, Christianity, sort of the big five Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Humanism. And because Humanism is really the most developed, formally developed, systematized, non religious worldview. And so I wanted something that I could compare kind of on a, you know, even playing field with the religious worldviews. This was for undergraduates. And so I gave them a textbook on world religions that actually had structured the chapters around three of the core worldviews questions. So I could integrate our worldviews approach with the textbook. And then it had three sections in each chapter. So one on teachings, one on history, and one, I think they called it ways of life. So under the teachings, they could basically answer, work out how the tradition answered all the worldview questions. And so we tested it and we could do it for all those traditions we're talking about. I developed a set of ways of life questions to go with the worldviews questions. And those were all about rituals. It, it was about how they think about time and the calendar. I'm not remembering all the parts in there, but there were a number of parts. And that's where all, yeah. the, all the ritual dimensions were. Um, yeah. Part of what you could see By doing the worldviews questions and all this stuff about the practices of life, you could see how the ways of life were enacting the worldview. So the, you know, the answers to the worldview questions were all embedded in the ritual practices, which were then enculturating people into them. So that if if you just did the practices because you grew up in it without any sort of particular training in the teachings there's a whole lot of things that you would incorporate and come to view as you know just how things are without necessarily thinking about it but let me add something to this because one of the disadvantages to doing a world religions or worldviews course the way that I did it is it gives you a kind of stove-piped view of these traditions. I use the history sections to show how they're really in families and how they developed relative to one another. But what it totally leaves out is the way that anthropologists would study this. So that if you go to India and study religious practitioners on the ground... (laughs) yeah, right. Okay. So I'm a Hindu or, you know, I'm of this caste or whatever, because they would tend to think in those terms still, but they might cross over and do different kinds of things. I mean, the people on the ground mix things up a whole lot. And so there's an alternative way to come at all that, which is from the grassroots level where you're looking at what people are actually doing, how they're mixing all kinds of things together. China is another great example of that where people can be Confucian and Buddhist and communist all at the same time. (laughs) And I mean, I think countries dominated by monotheistic traditions historically tend to internalize this sense that we gotta be one thing. So it makes, you know, when you have mixed marriages and stuff, it makes it a little more touch and go to be more than one thing. But in reality, we do that all the time.
0: Right, right. right. Yeah. So interesting. And I'm curious, and I know maybe we have time for just one more question, but you know, I, I'm thinking of what you just said in context of some of the work that some evolutionary psychologists like Robin Dunbar, other folks are doing around kind of um, theory of why ritual exists and how it functions in communities and societies yeah. and I'm curious, you know You know, it almost seems like when a like there's the the stage of a worldview becoming Articulated recounted textualized almost like ritualized almost feels like maybe the next step, right? Of course in miracles has been like textualized and then but it doesn't yet have these kind of structures to really Evoke and kind of continually reinforce the worldview in a life. How, how does that?
1: That's a really, really good point. But if we think about it in evolution, human evolutionary terms, yeah, I think ritual. I don't. I don't think we're going to put ritual at the end. I because I think. I mean, maybe in the super elaborate formalistic sense of that, but we. Go back to enacted and articulated, and we think about rituals initially having music and dance and story they're enact they're often reenacting a critical event that the people, whoever we are, are supposed to remember and you know, if that's the case, you know, basic kind of well, let's just say reenactments. So maybe with articulate, okay, maybe the problem is that our articulation level. Oh no, we go to remembering. So the the remembering level should also be reenacting.
0: Right.
1: Right. Yeah, right. I think you've that's got super something there. That we got, we got to, we got to, we got to bring that in more.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm curious. One last question, because I know, I know we're almost at the time. But you know, I, I've been personally kind of interested in, in this stuff for for a while. And I'm curious, you know, for someone who's interested in like doing more, uh, like deepening and, and learning more about this, or um, maybe even pursuing like formal study. What like, what do you think are the pathways for someone who wants to, you know, pursue this line of thinking and kind of like, yeah
1: uh at sort of what level
0: you mean like well i'm i'm, I'm curious both you know are, yeah both are there any kind of folks who are maybe looking for like a, an introductory understanding after this conversation you know are there what resources do you point people towards and do you know like are there places where at the graduate level this stuff is being really explored I, You think in a, in a meaningful way?
1: that's a hard question to answer I would say on the one hand, there's a lot of discussion about worldviews these days. It's popping up in all kinds of places. There's discussion of it in terms of education, both in terms of education around religion, but also science education. And environmental types and policy types So with policy, you know, it's coming up around issues of immigration, migration of people, interactions with people, and worldviews around climate change, and, you know, some worldviews fostering that and others not. So maybe the way that I would think about it would be, well, why I was hesitating at the beginning is, I don't see a lot of people in religious studies departments, let's put it this way in the U S are not falling all over themselves to embrace this. Mm -hmm. Um, And that the, in, in Europe, especially among educators, there is a lot of interest in worldview studies because in Europe, There's a lot of countries that, because of how their church-state relations developed over time, still have religious education built into high school or, well, built into high school, so they have to train teachers to teach that in high school. But they have these very pluralistic contexts now, often among the most secularized. Right. So... They're increasingly talking about uh religions and worldviews the u k has this new agreed upon framework for you know the country being or for the u k teaching religions and worldviews. So I guess where I would advise people is to start looking at the literature on worldviews and you know we could potentially come up with some kind of reading list and stuff for people, but then think about the context in which they want to use that. So whether they want to go into education, whether they want to go into environmental studies and work on climate change, whether they're interested in public policy issues, I think that this kind of framework or community building, right? It has tons of applications, but maybe the point wouldn't be to just do it in the abstract. Although, one last caveat I just discovered these folks doing system studies, and system studies has a philosophical aspect. They're in the UK, and the philosophical system studies see worldviews at the heart of what they're doing with system studies, but in comparing what Eggle and I've been doing with what they've been doing, they're actually where I see a consolidated picture of kind of all these efforts to define worldviews, but this is a systems perspective as opposed to ours, which is agent-based and action-oriented. So one of the things on our agenda is to be in conversation with the systems approach versus the agent approach. I think they're both valuable. But for applied purposes, I think agent-based, action-oriented may take us further.
0: Right, right. Well, Anne, thanks so much for taking the time today. This is such an interesting conversation, and I'm such a huge fan of your work. So really a joy today to be able to do this. If folks want to find out more about you, is there anything you'd like to point them towards online in terms of like
1: work? Oh yeah, they can just go. I mean, they can go to my website at UCSB. Publications are all listed there and you know, with links and stuff, they can get things there. Wonderful. Well,
0: Anne, thank you so much again for your time.
1: Yeah, thank you. This has been great. I'm excited about the work you're doing.
0: Thanks for listening to this conversation from the Open Div Summit. For more, check us out at summit.opendiv.org.